Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, you don't need to listen to my voice or questions because we'll be sitting in together on the March 31st online event, Nonviolence, an Interfaith Conversation, complete with presentations by David Mueller of the Catholic Worker Tradition, Pardeep Singh Kalika of the Sikh Tradition and the Executive Director of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee and co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds, a Sikh and former white supremacist find forgiveness after hate. Also presenting are Elliot Ratzman, assistant professor in the Religious Studies Department at Grinnell College, and one more main presenter, Jim Handley, who I've had on Spirit in Action before, a certified Kingian nonviolence trainer and senior lecturer in peace studies at UW-Stout. All of this is coming to us today courtesy of the joint efforts of the Norman Miller Center for Peace, Justice, and Public Understanding at St. Norbert College and the Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies. The names and links to them and the full 90-minute video are on the northernspiritradio.org site. You'll hear more about them as I turn control over to the folks from the Norman Miller Center featured today for Spirit in Action. Good evening and welcome to tonight's program. Tonight we're going to be talking about an interfaith conversation on nonviolence, and we're really pleased to have a great group of people with us. My name is Robert Pine. I direct the Norman Miller Center at St. Norbert College. The Norman Miller Center focuses on partnering with all academic disciplines and a host of community partners to cultivate awareness, compassion, and commitment to justice in the building of sustainable peace. We seek peace in the broadest sense as shalom, and we pursue justice not as revenge, but as the establishment of what is good and right. We are a part of a broad network, a consortium of schools, making up the Wisconsin Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies, among some of our other collaborations. And this event tonight is co-sponsored by the WIPCS. I'm very pleased to welcome the executive director, Jim Handley, who is Senior Lecturer in Applied Peace Studies at UW-Stout, and again, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Institute of Peace and Conflict Studies, and he's going to offer some words on behalf of the Institute. Thank you. As we get started, the organizers and co-sponsors of this event recognize and respect the inherent sovereignty of the 12 First Nations that reside in the boundaries of Wisconsin. We acknowledge the circumstances that led to their forced removal and honor their history of resistance and resilience. The First Nations residing in the boundaries of present-day Wisconsin remain vibrant and strong. I'm Jim Hanley, the Executive Director of the Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies, a proud co-sponsor of this event. The Institute is an organization of universities and colleges dedicated to promoting an, an informed understanding of peace, justice, and conflict reconciliation and to creating and supporting an education system that intentionally and thoughtfully prepares our students to make a positive impact in their communities. Colleges and universities across the state have made a commitment to helping create communities rooted in peace, justice, nonviolence, and sustainability. 
By joining our organization, these educational institutions are taking seriously their responsibility in creating positive social change and dismantling systems of oppression. The Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies firmly believes that by working together, our institutional members and their respective students will make a significant contribution to making our communities more just, more inclusive, and more peaceful. Again, on behalf of the Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies, welcome to the discussion. Thank you, Jim. We will have opportunity to hear from Jim a little bit later as he is a certified trainer in Kingian nonviolence, and he's going to be representing that perspective. We're also going to have opportunity to hear from Dr. Elliot Ratzman, Assistant Professor in the Religious Studies Department at Grinnell College, Pardeep Kalika, Executive Director of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee. And now first up, we're going to hear from David Mueller. David earned a master's degree from Catholic Theological Union and then co-founded Port Ministries, which has been serving the poor and homeless of the back of the yards neighborhood for the past 40 years. So after David's presentation, we'll hear from Pardeep, Elliot, and Jim, and then have opportunity for some questions. David Mueller, welcome. You're up first, my friend. Good evening, everyone. I want to thank Bob and Jill for organizing this discussion tonight. I'm going to sketch out for you in the next 10 minutes the Catholic perspective on nonviolence, starting with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, and then briefly touching on the early community, the just war ethic, and then focusing mostly on the important developments since the 20th century. Many of the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels were a radical departure from the way his followers were used to thinking. For instance, from Matthew's Gospel, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, offer no violent resistance to the one who is evil. He then illustrates three examples of nonviolent responses to mistreatment by another person. Coupled with the love of the enemies was his radical view on forgiveness. When Peter asked how many times he should forgive his neighbor, Jesus responded 70 times, seven times. In other words, we must always be willing to forgive. There is never an occasion for vengeance or getting even. Our discussion tonight is taking place on Tuesday of Holy Week. On Holy Thursday after the meal when Jesus was arrested in the garden, Peter came to his rescue and started attacking the mob. When he cut off the ear of one of them with his sword, Jesus said, Put away your sword, and all who live by the sword will die by the sword. And he then healed the man's ear. On Good Friday, from the scourging, the crowning with thorns, the carrying of the cross, and the crucifixion, Jesus, who we believe to be the second person of the Trinity, willingly absorbed all the violence that humanity was capable of unleashing on a person. Wouldn't this be the perfect opportunity and justification for an all-powerful God to retaliate with anger and vengeance? Instead, from the cross, Jesus utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. From the cross, the cycle of violence ended for all time. On Easter, Jesus rises from the dead as God's affirmation that everything he taught was the truth, that love overcomes hate, that forgiveness triumphs over retribution, and that nonviolent resistance to violence leads to life. When Jesus returned to the upper room with the apostles who had abandoned him after his arrest, instead of words of anger, he said, peace be with you. And he commanded them to go out and offer the same to the world. 
In the early centuries of the church, the followers of Jesus lived lives marked by nonviolence and reconciliation. But when the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal in 313, the church was brought into the mainstream of society with all the trappings of power and success. Nonviolence as a foundational ethic for the followers of Christ was put on hold. St. Augustine in the fourth century developed the just war. Effort to limit war and violence, it spelled out when it was acceptable to go to war, along with specified restraints on how the war was to be conducted. For the next 16 centuries, the just war ethic would be the dominant framework for ethical decisions when it came to issues of war and peace. Now let's leap into the 20th century. This is the century when two world wars claimed the lives of over 80 million people. Truly, this called for a new evaluation of where we had come from and where we needed to go. Theologians and scripture scholars began to refocus on the nonviolent aspect of the teachings and life of the historical Christ. The Jesuit theologian Robert Daly concluded, nonviolence is at the heart of the gospel. There is little scholarly doubt that the message of nonviolence is central to Jesus' life and teaching. A significant development in the United States was the founding of the Catholic Worker Movement by Peter Morin and Dorothy Day in 1933. In the midst of the Great Depression, they performed the works of mercy. In their newspaper, they promoted workers' rights to organize unions, and they articulated connections between poverty and the money spent on weapons and in preparations for war. Dorothy Day, her entire life, took a stance against war and promoted nonviolent resistance in the face of injustice. She never wavered from these positions. The underlying theology of Dorothy Day's positions was, in my opinion, based on three factors. First, she strongly believed in the innate dignity of every human being because of being created in the image of God. Second, she embraced the concept of the mystical body of Christ. She believed that we all belong to one family. So to kill another human being would be an act of fratricide. And third, she was somewhat of a fundamentalist when it came to scripture interpretation. So when Jesus said, love your enemy, put away your sword, she took these commands literally, and she wasn't willing to compromise them. The Catholic workers spawned other important movements and organizations. Members of the New York Catholic worker organized the first protest to the Vietnam War, and they started the Catholic Peace Fellowship an organization to assist Catholics who wanted to file as conscientious objectors to war. After the Vietnam War, many of the Catholic workers participated in the Plowshares movement. Small groups would plan nonviolent actions in protest of nuclear weapons that often resulted in their imprisonment. As I speak, the granddaughter of Dorothy Day, Martha Hennessy, and six others are serving prison sentences for breaking into the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base on April 4th of 2018. On the other side of the ocean, after World War II, Pax Christi, a Catholic peace organization, sprang up in Europe and spread across the world. Church leadership soon followed suit. Pope John XXIII called for the opening of the Second Vatican Council in 1962. And soon after the council started, he published Pachamenteris, or Peace on Earth. It was a first papal encyclical addressed to the entire world rather than just Catholics. He emphasized human dignity and equality among all peoples and encouraged everyone to build a world of peace. This encyclical was considered so groundbreaking that it was published in its entirety in the New York Times. In the last year of the council, 
The pastoral constitution of the church in the modern world was finally approved after going through numerous drafts. To the surprise of many, the final draft contained two far-reaching positions. Number one, for the first time, the church recognized the right of a Catholic to be a conscientious objector to war. And number two, it issued an unconditional condemnation of the use of nuclear weapons. So nonviolent civil resistance as a strategy for social change started to grow out of this shift in church teaching. Two examples that altered the political landscape were the Solidarity Movement in Poland in the 1980s, which led to the collapse of their communist government. This started a domino effect which helped dissolve the Soviet Union. The other example was the nonviolent overthrow of Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator of the Philippines. In the early 1980s, the bishops arranged for nonviolent education at the parish level. On February 22, 1986, the Archbishop of Manila called on Catholics to come out and protect the officers and soldiers who were defecting from the military. Two million people responded. After three days, Marcos fled the country. In this current century, perhaps the most significant recent development is the work of the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative. The CNI is a collective of theologians and activists from around the world, many from areas of violent conflict. In 2016, they met in Rome for several days for initial discussions with Vatican officials. In preparation for the second conference, they divided into eight smaller working groups to research and write on different aspects of nonviolence. At the second conference in 2019, each working group made their presentations and then presented their documents to the Vatican officials. They are hopeful that their collective work will serve as a basis for a future encyclical on nonviolence. In conclusion, I'd like to close with this short reflection by Pope Francis. My faith urges me to look to the cross. Oh, I wish that all men and women of goodwill would look to the cross if only for a moment. There we can see God's reply. Violence is not answered with violence. Death is not answered with the language of death. For in the silence of the cross, the uproar of weapons ceases, and the language of reconciliation, forgiveness, dialogue, and peace is spoken. Thank you. Thank you, David. Now, as we think about the language of reconciliation, we turn to our friend Pardeep Singh Kalika. Pardeep is executive director of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee. He's a published author and columnist and clinician specializing in trauma-informed care for both survivors and perpetrators of violence. He was a police officer and educator in the inner city of Milwaukee until the shooting at the Sikh temple in 2012, where his father, the temple founder, was one of seven parishioners killed. Pardeep's work today is to encourage stewardship of healthy social and spiritual fabrics, fostering genuine connections between individuals in their communities so that hate and hate crimes are less likely to happen. Pardeep, welcome. Thank you, Bob. Uh, thank you, Jill, for uh, putting everything together. Bob, thank you for putting everything together. I'd also like to thank the Norman Miller Center, uh, Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies. I am honored to be uh, a guest today to speak about both violence and nonviolence. I wish you all greetings on behalf of the Interfaith Conference of Greater Milwaukee. We are an organization that serves over 22 uh, judicatories, including mainline Protestants, Roman Catholics, the Jewish community, Muslim community, Buddhists, Baha'is, Hindus, Latter-day Saints, Moravians, Pentecostals, Sikhs, Unitarian Universalists, 
and so many more. We've been doing this work for about 51 years, and I do not propose to be able to speak on behalf of all of those organizations, religious uh, judicatories and faith partners. And I think that's the beauty of the work that we do is that we respect where each other drives our faith from, but we anchor all of our faiths and knowing that we are anchoring that faith in love. That's what brings us together. And uh, again, honored to be here today. As David was talking, I was just thinking about it. And so I also attended a Jesuit college, Marquette University, for my undergrad. And the statement that was made about nonviolence and nonviolence being at the heart of the gospel is very much true, is the foundation of the Jesuit teachings, is the foundation of Christianity. And I think that is true for all of our faiths, is that nonviolence is, is at the heart of Islam. Nonviolence is at the heart of Judaism. Uh, nonviolence is at the heart of Sikhi. So all of our faiths are rooted in that love and anything that takes the narrative away from that, I think that we need to, as a collective community, need to speak up. That is the work that we've been doing for some time now. And so uh, whenever we feel like one of our faith communities is being targeted, we rally around that faith community and let them know that they're not alone and they don't go, they're not going to go through this alone. So we stand in solidarity. We build those relationships preemptively. So a lot of the work that we do our preemptive relationships and building trust across faiths. We do a lot of programming that teaches about not only our faiths, but, but really how the way that our faiths help us lead our lives, the way that our faiths help us navigate joys and happiness and grief and sadness and loss and struggles. And so I'm going to share a little bit of my own personal struggle and how that struggle helped me come closer to not only my faith, but to all, all of our faith partners. And I don't want to, you know, to me, Faith is much more than just you know an organization or a partnership, or it's very, very deep. So as we start this, I want everyone to kind of think about what is violence. Let's think about and maybe even meditate on what is violence. What is violence to me is when we defile the spirit of someone else. And that looks like many different ways that we do it. And we all got to understand that we all have the propensity to commit violence. I was driving with my, my daughter today. She's 15 years old. And she was talking about a book that she just read. And she talked about some conflict in there. And, and then she finally came to me and she said, but you're a good dad. You're not like that. I didn't, and I said, okay, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm a good dad and yeah, like helps my ego. But I also want to be mindful of where I am and say, okay, well, you know, your father has an equal propensity for violence. It might just look different than somebody else's. And I'm not falsely equating or trying to get to a place where, like, okay, this type of violence is condoned and that type of violence is not condoned. But I want us to always take a look in the mirror as much as we look out of windows. And if we're not being self-reflective on the way that we can show up and be violent and maybe defile somebody else's spiritual nature, their being, then we're not really doing justice to our own faith work. Anything worth believing in is worth questioning. And that was the lessons that were taught to me throughout my Jesuit education and uh, even going forward. We all got to take a look in the mirror as much as we look out of windows. The world has pressing problems, but at the same time, so do we personally. And we make up the world and we have a stake in the world. And I learned all of this, as Bob pointed out, after 2012, the shooting happened at the Sikh Temple. At that time, I would have told you that faith didn't play a big role in my life. And what I saw that day and what I see the way that I see the solution really going forward is to have community continually show up. 
that day as seven people lay dead at the hands of an affiliated white supremacist, what I saw was a community that made a choice. The choice was really that Sunday morning, people could have gone home. People could have went to their own places or could have watched whatever on TV, but people made the choice to come and show up at the temple that, that day. And I think our faith requires us to always have forks in the road, to make a choice and to keep making those choices. And that choice is always, if we are true to our faith, it's going to call us to show up for people. It's going to call us to genuinely love a person and call us to help heal the wounds of the past. And so that day was my first experience to the work of interfaith. As I saw people from different faiths showing up, many people who didn't speak the same language, many people who maybe didn't believe the same way, many people who had ascribed to different cultures showing up. And what I saw was that they spoke a universal language. And that universal language was really one of empathy, genuine spiritual empathy. When I think about the solution as we go forward to nonviolence is that we need to create the foundation of empathy, understanding, not judgment. And so sometimes within whatever the work that we do, there's an internal battle and an external battle. After the shooting happened, there was an internal battle at the Sikh temple. And the internal battle was really, and this is what people said to me, I want to stay inside my sanctuary walls. I don't want people to come inside because I feel scared. Now, sometimes that's a universal feeling. Our sanctuary walls just look different. And what keeps us sometimes there is that we're scared. We're fearful. And so the internal battle is really to get outside of those sanctuary walls. And so as uncomfortable as it was, I had to force an entire people that felt comfortable or felt safer inside those sanctuary walls to say, you have to go outside. You can't exist in whatever walls we create. You have to move. That came with a lot of personal sort of struggle because people then would blame you and say, okay, well, why are you forcing me to do this? And oftentimes we feel it whenever we try to make somebody move from a certain behavior that they've been doing for a very long time. Try with the family member, try with, you know, your brother, your sister, somebody. And oftentimes it's really, really hard to make them move. But what is being required right now to get to a society where forgiveness, love, understanding is the norm, is the foundational stone that we're going to move forward with, is that we have to move. We have to come together. We also have to understand and so the work that we're doing right now is really educational, is collaborative, is relationship building, is understanding. Oftentimes I tell people, I say that sometimes the deepest form of love is understanding. The most sincerest form of love is sometimes simply just understanding and not understanding from your lens, but understanding from somebody else's lens. And then we, we speak of empathy. So for us, and I'm going to keep it under 10 minutes so we can go to questions and answers. For me, that was both a personal journey and a communal journey. I knew that there's a responsibility to the community to help heal for my internal community, but also for the external community to say, hey, what I know is, is that this is not who we are. This is not what we stand for. Yes, this might have happened, but there's a lot of love in the world. What I want to do right now is to make sure that the sacred community that has come together, that the voice of that sacred community is centered not the voice of hate. Now, we can't ignore hate. We can't ignore that violence exists. We can't ignore evil. We cannot ignore divisions. We can't ignore our history. 
But what we have to start to center is solutions, is forgiveness, is love, is how do we move forward? Because, you know, and I'll talk a little bit about being a clinician. I started to see that there's a lot of people who will trauma loop, who will repeat the same thing. And sometimes that comes from a place of consciousness, but a lot of times it comes from a place of subconsciousness. And when you see somebody saying the same thing, but in different ways, that was trauma looping. And I'm worried that our country is going through one big communal trauma loop as misery, as all of these things come to visit every single day. Because oftentimes I ask somebody, how are you doing? Talk about the news, talk about, and then again, like we should. And I say, how are you doing? Well, I'm okay. So building from a place of experience and relationships, and then and that could have, at that time when the shooting did happen, there was a journey to be made. And I think, David, you, you talked about this when I think about those final 14 words that Jesus Christ said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I oftentimes think about who was Jesus speaking to and who was forgiveness for. On his way there, there was somebody who kind of alluded to him and saying, if you're the son of man, then free yourself. It felt like when he said those words, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was speaking to both the father and himself. Forgiveness that lesson of forgiveness, the embodiment of forgiveness, taking on the embodiment of what that means, was a lesson to all of us to say, forgiveness is freedom. Forgiveness is, and when we talk about forgiveness and vengeance, I view forgiveness as the ultimate vengeance. I view it as a place to come back to say, you know what? I have to reclaim me. And then once I reclaim me and who I was supposed to be, I can reclaim my family and I can reclaim my community and I can reclaim our spiritual fabric. And so when we think about violence and nonviolence, when we get to a place of nonviolence, it's to come back to say, how can we free ourselves of the history that we have existed in for so long? How can we genuinely be one with the spirit? Oftentimes it is both an internal and external journey. I talk a little bit about what that internal external journey can feel like and mean but it is, it is to, to be conscious about when we defile the spirit of somebody else and when, what the consequences of that might be. Thank you, Bob. We're about halfway through what we can share today for Spirit in Action from the March 31st event, Nonviolence, an Interfaith Conversation. And we've already heard from two of the four main presenters at this event, hosted by St. Norbert College's Norman Miller Center for Peace, Justice, and Public Understanding, co-sponsored with the Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies. Links to all of the presenters and these organizations and to the full 90-minute video of the program are on Northern Spirit. Radio.org. Visit, post a comment, follow those links, make a donation to Northern Spirit Radio, find the 42 stations that carry our programming, and please start off by making a donation from your hands and wallet to make sure that this vital broadcasting alternative, Community Radio, survives and thrives. Back now to the remaining two presenters at Nonviolence and Interfaith Conversation. And remember that you can hear the full Q&A session via the video link we have on NordenSpiritRadio.org. Onward. Thank you, Pardeep. Um, so much to think about so far with both you and David. Really appreciate it. Our next guest is Dr. Elliot Ratzman. Elliot is assistant professor in the Religious Studies Department at Grinnell College, where he teaches courses in Judaism, ethics, and peace and conflict studies. 
Next year, he will become chair of Jewish studies at the, in the religion department at Earlham College. He's worked with the Israeli peace movement for several decades. He serves on the Religion and Socialism Commission for the Democratic Socialists of America. He's finishing a book about Jewish anti-racism in the U.S., Israel, and Europe. And he is one of our favorite collaborators from when he was a visiting professor at St. Norbert College. So, Elliot, welcome back and welcome to tonight's program. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be back here uh, at the Norman Miller Center. Uh, thanks, Bob and Jill, for having me. Pardeep is too humble to mention that he has a fantastic book, a, a joint memoir that he wrote with a former white supremacist. And this is the story of his life and their collaboration. And I think it's really important for y'all. This is a great book. I read it back in December, and it inspired me to go out and find out some other books about the Sikh community. And really actually did change my mind a little bit of thinking about reconciliation and forgiveness. I had been convinced that this was primarily a Christian phenomena, and I was delighted to hear it showing up in his tradition. So we are just a week away from another anniversary of 55 years after Martin Luther King gave the famous anti-Vietnam War speech, Time to Break Silence. The Fellowship of Reconciliation is hosting a reading of celebrities reading King's speech next week. My job here to tie this in is that one of the clergy organizers of that speech was Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was, though not a pacifist, a committed activist for peace and justice, and one of the early opponents of the Vietnam War, also the Korean War, and urged King, along with others, to give that speech. And he was sitting on that table next to King during that speech. What I want to do here tonight, though, is talk about nonviolence. In Judaism, this is a fraught topic, especially when Christian thinkers and speakers contrast the religion of ancient Israel with the kind of peaceful religion of Jesus. And so I, I didn't intend to be polemical, although it may sound like that, but I want to sort of draw very quickly a sketch of what this means. Now, we're in the middle of Passover, the holiday of liberation from slavery. In that story, God uses force, the plagues, to free the Israelites from slavery onto a promised land through much tumult, violence, and strife. When they get to the promised land, they take the land by force, driving out the inhabitants. So it sounds like a very violent narrative. But I want to, I want to agree with Pardeep that we should insist that the essence of all our faiths is nonviolence. But in practical matters, the existence of all of our faiths, the existence of all of our traditions, are all too often, depending on the context, violent. We have dominant strains of all of our traditions, which are callous, but we should instead champion those liberatory strands and strains. And it's not about the religion per se. No religion is inherently violent. It's about the context, and it's usually about when a religion has control over a state. It's not just about war, but that violence is also about sexism. That violence is also about racism and xenophobia. And I think all of our traditions have their unflattering moments some longer than others. So let me just say a few words about how this shows up in Judaism. So we're celebrating this Passover, this commemoration of Egypt, and during our ritual dinner, what Christians know as the Last Supper, the Passover Seder, we remember those plagues. We are in a time of plague, and we bemoan the plagues just a bit that freed us from slavery. So uh, wine is spilled out a little bit at the mention of each plague in a ritual to remember, as the lore within Judaism says, that God weeped when the Egyptians were killed, that we should not be celebrating the death of the enemy, even if 
by some divine logic, it was necessary. So I want to insist that Judaism is an important case study for all of us in the question of nonviolence, maybe the questioning of an absolute pacifism, and I'll put it this way. If a Martian anthropologist were to pick up copies of both the Jewish Bible and the Christian New Testament, read them through, they would probably speculate that the Jews turned out to be a warrior race, owing to the amount of conquest, battles, and bloodshed you can find there in the Hebrew Bible. God is described as the Lord of armies. He's ordering the Israelites to conquer and subdue the Canaanite inhabitants of the promised land. Now, if these Martians were to pick up the New Testament, they would read a story of a spiritual teacher who seemed to disavow violence and wealth and institutions at every turn. Those Martians would speculate then that these hippie Christian pacifists would have died off quickly, never amounting to much. But reality has reversed. The Jews ended up dispersed, decentered, bookish middle agent communities committed to literacy and learning. The Jews lacked political or martial power for two millennia, lacking territory, lacking sovereignty. The Christians, those hippie pacifists, by contrast, centralized their institutions, became the Roman Empire, conquered the West, and quickly figured out through Augustine how to square the circle of the possible existence of something called a Christian army. But as things go, things are more complicated. The Jewish Bible is of two minds. On one hand, divine anger and worldly violence, but the Hebrew Bible is also full of sublime visions of human harmony and peace. The prophets, their visions, conjure the very notion of a common humanity. The God of the Bible rails against the violence of the idolaters, resists and refuses and ends human sacrifice, resists the idea of a king and forcing the king to memorize and write out the law. Torah's laws pertains to restrictions on war, slavery, conquest, and treatment of the other, but even as they acknowledge that war, slavery, conquest, and second-class outsiders are part of the reality of the world of the Bible. Now, as Jews lost sovereignty and territory and losing a geographic center, it is the Talmud, the writings, musings, debates, sayings, stories of the rabbis, where we find in Judaism the most extreme statements for peace, the stories of brains over brawn, of peaceable sages, and a disavowal of armies, violence, vengeance, envy, and all the other practices and affects that disrupt human flourishing. The sages and rabbis even reread the violence of scripture as metaphor, the violence metaphor for inner struggle, much like Islam does with jihad, much like Gandhi does with the Bhagavad Gita, reading a war poem is actually an extended metaphor about the conquest of self. The rabbis say that when you read of weapons and bloody sacrifices, you should insert prayers. Those harsh commandments, the eye for eye that David mentioned, death for Sabbath breakers, these, the rabbis argue, are misunderstood. It means something else. The rabbis can't do anything with the book of Joshua, so they ignore it. The voices of the Talmud and the rabbis insist that just about any commandment can be super suspended for the cause of peace, peace in the house, the town, between strangers and across borders. Violence is almost never a solution to the problems between people or between people and the divine order. Violence is the sole purview of God's will and evil souls. But Jewish proto-pacifism is convenient when you don't have an army. It's convenient when you don't have a state. And theologies of divine punishment are convenient when you're not facing or reflecting on the Holocaust. So here we have the two towering challenges to nonviolence 
to pacifism for all of us, one being the Holocaust, the, the rise of Nazi Germany, and the other is the state of Israel. Now, Gandhi was goaded by his Jewish friends to make a statement about Hitler's violent oppression of the Jews of Germany. He counseled that the Jews should become martyrs. Martin Buber, the great peace-loving Jewish philosopher, a spiritual Zionist, an advocate of nonviolence, replied in an open letter on the impossibility of this, that this would be martyrdom without any sort of relevance, martyrdom without effect. So let me pull this all together here. You have Judaism being not the Judaism of the Old Testament, but the Judaism of the rabbis, which was a pacifist tradition. But it was pacifism because it was the only option. Jews had no armies, no territory, no state. When Jews regained the state in the 40s, the resort to violence, even though the state was founded by secular socialist Jews, Jews fall into the same habits, practices, and evils as Christians found themselves after Constantine, after becoming the Roman Empire. So this Constantinian Judaism, which is now mutating before our eyes, where rabbis, Orthodox rabbis, who eschewed violence for centuries, are now starting to revisit the book of Joshua, seeing the Palestinian as a sort of overlay of the Canaanite. This is all very disturbing. But for the Jewish tradition, and there's no essence here, there's only the reaction of context and text, is that many Jews are committed to a kind of multicultural democracy in America of liberal values and find the racism and the colonialism of the state of Israel uncomfortable. But the state of Israel is a great example of how a religious tradition can turn itself into a religion which sanctions or sanctifies violence when it's in the interest of the community. So therein is a lesson for us all. Best that religion is not involved with states and not just armies and governments, but we have to wonder about policing. We have to wonder about power, about deep sexism. And of course, what the black critics of the FOR made the point back in the 30s of racism as the pernicious trends of violence, at least in the United States and of course elsewhere. So I think while we celebrate these traditions for their peaceable faces and their peaceable essence, we have to always be on guard lest power falls into the hands of these religions. For no matter how peaceful the tradition, they will be distorted by the corrupting influences of power and self-interest. Where religion is best is when it holds us all accountable in that prophetic mode of critiquing the powers that be the powers that be that are forgetting their obligation to morality, letting the orphan, the widow, and the stranger down. So just to sort of conclude, I want to insist that the caricature of Judaism as a violent religion, when you just read the Bible, has to give way to a more robust reading of the actual Judaism in practice and the actual Judaism of those communities. Judaism of social justice committed to anti-racism in the U.S., a Judaism that sort of made its peace with colonialism and anti-Arab racism in Israel. And in all these cases, of course, a strain of Jewish offbeat pacifism, a strain of nonviolence. And as I have worked with the Jewish peace movements, though few would say they are committed to a kind of pacifism, all believing that wars are just, we have seen movements over the last 15 years of Israelis resisting army service, army service in the occupied territories, going back in a tradition, even in the United States, of Jewish pacifists during World War II, who tried to turn enemy combatants in POW camps 
into France. That was the goal of the Jewish Peace Fellowship when it first emerged in 1941 in Cincinnati, my hometown. So I want to offer a challenge to all of us, which is that we have to worry about the social context in which our religions develop and be ever mindful that communal self-interest might start justifying and overriding the peaceful strands that we want to champion. Thank you. Thanks so much, Elliot. Again, much food for thought. And those of you who are watching who might have some questions for us, please put those in the question and answer section at the bottom of your webpage, and we'll try to get to those. But first, we hear from our friend Jim Handley, certified Kingian nonviolence trainer and senior lecturer in applied peace studies at UW-Stout. Jim Handley, welcome. Thank you. When we talk about Kingian nonviolence, that's really the philosophy and strategies that Martin Luther King Jr. taught, mostly during the civil rights movement. And among the gifts that King was endowed with was a really, really strong work ethic and an intellectual curiosity. The result of that combination was that he was brilliant. He's known as a great orator, a mover of people with his words, and certainly he was that. But this is a guy that went to college when he was 15 years old, and he graduated from Morehouse College with a sociology degree, went on to Crozer Theologic Seminary, where he graduated with a Bachelor of Divinity. And then in 1955, Martin Luther King becomes Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he earned his PhD in theology from Boston University. And during that time, he was able to read and be influenced by a wide, wide breadth. And as King read and grew and developed under powerful mentors like Howard Thurman and became an internationally recognized activist, he got the opportunity to hang out with a spiritually diverse group of people that he learned from and had the remarkable capacity to synthesize this acquired knowledge into a coherent, powerful, and tested framework for social change. Some of his most important influences, obviously, were Gandhi, who was a Hindu, Bayard Rustin, who was influenced by his grandmother's Quaker faith, Henry David Thoreau, who disliked organized religion altogether, of course, Howard Thurman, who was a Baptist minister and a social justice activist. King was influenced by Leo Tolstoy, who was a Christian anarchist, James Lawson, who was convinced that the messages of social justice, freedom, and Jesus were inseparable. King actually developed a very good friendship with Thich Han, a Buddhist monk. So when we think about the evolution of King's thinking, it's important to remember that he was learning and growing as a deep thinker, as a Christian and a Baptist minister, and as a social activist all at the same time. He was intellectually gifted enough to open his mind to many religions and many spiritual traditions, and he used all of them in his framework of nonviolence, which stated in the, his pilgrimage are based on six principles. So the first one is that nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. In its earliest form, the word courage meant to speak one's mind by telling all one's heart. Courage is having it in you to honestly speak from the heart and act in harmony with what's in it. King looked at nonviolence as a way of training our hearts to be prepared to act courageously. 
standing up to oppression, violence, and injustice in a morally righteous way, King saw that as the highest form of courage. The principle also speaks to King's framing of nonviolence as transcendence of just a mere political strategy and ultimately as a worldview or as a way of life. The second principle is that the beloved community is the framework of the future. Building the beloved community involves an effort to achieve a reconciled world by raising the level of relationships among people to a height where justice prevails and people attain their full potential. To King, the beloved community was a realistic, achievable goal that could be attained when a critical mass of people committed to and trained in the philosophy and methods of nonviolence. It wasn't lions and lambs laying together in peace and harmony. The beloved community would still have conflict. That's inevitable. But those conflicts are resolved nonviolently in ways that have the potential to lead to growth and healing. Like Kingian nonviolence itself, the beloved community is rooted in love. King said, power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. He looked at it like love and justice are intertwined in ways that are inseparable. When he talked about love, he talked about agape love, which is, again, universal in religious traditions, where it's disinterested, unmotivated, where it's creative love that doesn't seek anything in return. It's a love that we have for the rest of humanity, even people that are hard to love. The hardest part about this principle is that everybody is welcome in the beloved community, even our perceived enemies. The third principle is that we attack forces of evil, not the persons doing the evil. This principle recognizes the fact that broken people behave in broken ways. That may include supporting or even directly carrying out acts of violence, oppression, and injustice. It's our work as nonviolent practitioners to love them and to attack injustice, not broken, traumatized, or ignorant people. We hold people accountable, not for punitive reasons, but because we love them. And we see how healing the brokenness benefits both them and us. This principle recognizes that we can pick out all the rotten apples out of the barrel. But if the barrel itself is rotten, we're wasting our time looking for bad apples. We need to build a better barrel, one that supports liberation and freedom and justice. By attacking people, we miss the opportunity to build authentic relationships with them. When we build relationship, we open up a greater possibility for empathy, like Pradeep talked about in his presentation. And the greater our capacity for empathy, the more motivated and skilled we'll be in attacking injustice. As we become better able to recognize how interconnected the human community is, we start to see the need to heal the trauma people are weighed down with and help people overcome their ignorance, not just for them, but for our own self-interest. When King said, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. What he meant is that the struggle for justice is a group project, man. We need to be in it together. I'll never achieve my full potential as a human being until you have the opportunity to reach your full potential. 
Our liberation is tied together like the shared destiny of two waves moving across the ocean. The fourth principle is that we accept suffering without retaliation for the sake of the cause to achieve a goal. Voluntary suffering can be redemptive. It can give us strength and inspire others to join. When we're able to remain nonviolent in the face of violence while enduring suffering, we paint a very clear picture of who is right and who is wrong. The other thing with this is time is neutral. People think that time heals all wounds, that time will somehow bring us justice, that we just need to be patient. Change is not inevitable. King made that very, very clear. And it's up to us to engage in this work. And this work is oftentimes difficult, but we do it anyway because the work for justice needs to get done. The fifth principle is that we avoid internal violence of the spirit as well as external violence. We can't do for the world what we can't do for ourselves. So King saw much of the work of nonviolence as internal, that we need to work on ourselves. We need to train our hearts and our minds. When I develop hate or anger or ill will, the first person that's harmed is me. We have to avoid doing violence to ourselves and we have to engage in the kind of self-care that helps our minds, bodies, and hearts be healthy and happy. I just had a conversation with my wife, Chris, about this last night, about what my life would look like if I gave priority to my mental and physical health over the other things that seem to dominate my life and many others' lives. That's the fifth principle. The sixth principle is that the universe is on the side of justice. This principle has really helped me learn a couple of the different aspects of Kenyan nonviolence. First, it's important for us to acknowledge that throughout history, oppressed people have liberated themselves from bondage, and so it will be now. We need to be grounded in reality, and that reality should fill us with faith, faith that peace is possible, faith that we can overcome oppression and violence. People have done it throughout history. Creating the beloved community is a project that is not going to be completed in my lifetime. That doesn't make my work any less meaningful or valuable. King reminded us that the moral arc of the universe is long, but bends towards justice. We are the ones that need to make sure that it's bending that way. The second idea is one that I got from this book that I just finished called Healing Resistance by Kazuhaga. It is a brilliant articulation of the Kingian nonviolence, and it was really enriching and re-energizing to read that book. But we can think about this idea of the universe is on the side of justice. We can think about justice as fairness and getting what we deserve. Of course, the universe doesn't care if we build authentic relationship in the beloved community. But if the human community invests in violence and oppression, the universe will be filled with violence and oppression. We know that to be true. And we've gotten what we deserve. You can call that return on investment or karma or whatever you want. That can be looked at as justice. What if we invested in peace and nonviolence? What would that look like? And what would our return on investment be? As I sit here talking about Kingian nonviolence, I think right now it's important to acknowledge right here that King was murdered for pursuing this question. The philosophy and strategic framework of Kingian nonviolence has been successful at changing social conditions. We know that to be true. 
Some people rightfully point out that it hasn't defeated racial injustice or even guaranteed people the right to vote here in 2021. I get that. But maybe it's not because of some fundamental flaw in the philosophy or strategy. There are those among us, myself included, who are convinced that Kenyan nonviolence just hasn't been implemented on a grand enough scale. Nonviolence just hasn't been used enough. We need a critical mass of people involved in this project. That's why peace education is so important now, more than any other time I think that I've been teaching. I think educators and education institutions have a moral obligation to help students develop the skills and knowledge to build the beloved community. That's why I'm so proud to work at UW-Stout, who's taken its role in creating peaceful communities seriously. We've developed an academically rigorous curriculum using Kenyan nonviolence as its foundation. We're doing our part to build a critical mass of people ready for struggle. The Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies is facilitating a statewide read of Kazuhaga's Healing Resistance, the book I just remembered next year, on our member campuses as its contribution to building the critical mass of people trained in nonviolence. King was an eclectic and creative thinker that drew upon a rich and diverse wealth of knowledge steeped in many spiritual and religious traditions. And he developed a framework that I see as a realistic path to building a community founded upon justice and rooted in love. It seems to provide an opportunity to build something that is worthy of all the sacrifice, all the work, and even all the lives that have been given in the struggle. Thank you. We're out of time, but a link to the full 90-minute video of Nonviolence and Interfaith Conversation is on the northernspiritradio.org website, and you can also connect with co-sponsors, the Wisconsin Institute for Peace and Conflict Studies and the Norman Miller Center for Peace and Justice and Public Understanding at St. Norbert College via the Northern Spirit Radio site. I'm thankful for the work both of these organizations are doing that they accepted to share the conversation here on Spirit in Action. There's more good world-healing workers coming next week when you again join us for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.